house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Very nice suite at the Four Seasons. The walls are too bright. We need to do some grocery shopping. Hi, Daddy. Look, Daddy's here. You're shopping? Yeah. Who eats these? The snails? Well, there's a lot of things you don't know about me. Like your need for tampons. Albert Brooks, Sharon Stone, Andy McDowell, and Jeff Bridges. Your life is never going to be the same. It's my job to inspire. It's a miracle. Who is she? Just try to have some fun today. What am I going to find? Why don't you go and then you can tell me? That's it. It's mystical. Told you. It's magical. Wow. It just might save my life. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that gets dressed up all sexy to do housework. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my late night Waldorf salad, Chris File. Hello, Chris. You know, I have been called many things in this time. Um... (laughs) Great. I don't love Waldorf salad, so... So wait, Waldorf salad is lettuce, chicken, apples, walnuts? Yes. Mayonnaise. And I think the dressing is just mayonnaise, but I could be wrong. See, my mom, when we were younger, would make us a chicken salad that was most of those things. It was was diced diced chicken, iceberg lettuce, uh, apples, peanuts... And then mayonnaise. So, like, it was, like, it was essentially, like, a nice chicken salad. It was more of that than, like, it was more chicken than salad, if that makes sense. So, like, right. um, but we really enjoyed that. But I never realized it was, like, that close to a, Wal- a Waldorf. I don't like walnuts, so. Oh, see, I like walnuts. I don't like mayonnaise. Oh. And, like, I can have it in a true chicken salad or a tuna salad, but otherwise mayonnaise is – I'm I'm very picky about soft white foods. Makes me feel <laughs> like I'm eating something unnatural. <laughs> I'm very picky about soft white foods. Makes me wish that we had, like, a year-end compilation of our greatest moments on the podcast because, like, that would uh, – that I would include. Yeah, soft sure. white foods that aren't cheese or um, – Right. Or, like – uh cake icing like i right. don't like cream cheese oh that's interesting don't do mayonnaise fascinating what do you have on a bagel butter all right my bagel order is an everything bagel with butter oh that's interesting all right i support that okay uh chris it's may it's the month of may it is indeed may by the time you're listening to this, we're going to pretend it's May. It's the, it's the waning, rainy days of April as I look out my window, forlornly. But what do we as do you are in listening May? to this, it's May. Uh, in May, we wear pink and do miniseries. True. Uh, mostly it's just the miniseries. This is our third consecutive year where we have done a miniseries for the podcast in the month of May. Our first turn at it, we did the film's of 2003 where we talked about uh movies like Sylvia and The Human Stain and The Missing and remind me what our fourth one was In the Cut Jane Campion's yes. exceptional In the Cut that was 
Was that our first listener's choice episode? That, that was the been. listener's choice. Yeah. And then, of course, we used every opportunity we could take to talk about Cold Mountain, even though it was a, yeah. a many-time Oscar nominee. Uh, last year, last May, which was also in quarantine, it's like it's 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 unbelievable that that was uh, a year ago, but it was last May. We did our legendary Naomi Watts miniseries where we talked about uh, La Divorce and the Painted Veil and Diana and. A fourth one? What was our fourth one? What was our fourth one? Did we do... Oh, St. Vincent, which I believe was maybe a listener's choice. Maybe we chose all of the Naomi Watts. I think we might have... Uh, yes, we may have. Um, and so this may... we I think we sort of settled on this one pretty early, at least as a strong possibility. We wanted to do something not focused on a year or a person. This time we are going to focus on a film studio. And the choice to me was obvious what was what is the film studio that fits our little umbrella uh perfectly and also that we have great affection for uh pause for sound drops for soothing a sound drop that uh washes over me like a beautiful painkiller <laughs> our beloved focus features chris you know when i get really pissed off in a focus features film what? when they use a needle drop for the focus features logo instead of the focus features music when has that happened that's pretty sure it happens with promising young woman but it's also happened other times before that's interesting what i thought was interesting when i watched uh the film we're going to be talking about today the muse they use the focus features logo in the streaming uh version of the muse that yeah. i saw even though that is anachronistic they still use the october i think Films it's probably just card. a rights thing they just add of it course on to, of course because yeah. they're the ones who are you know making it available to stream right now but uh can we yeah. talk about the october films logo though silence but it is nine thousand years long <laughs> so the screen is just october right for a good like five seconds and then it's films and it then takes, presents. Yeah. It takes a long time. But listen, they want you to, you know, they want you to linger with it. You're not going to forget it because you're just like, why am I looking at the words October films for this long? So we're going to be doing a five-week miniseries because there are five Mondays in May this year. And the f- the f- latter four movies are all going to be proper Focus Features movies from after the point where Focus became a thing in 2002. But we wanted to kick this off acknowledging the sort of rich corporate history uh, of of this production company, of this distributor. And we put it up to a listener's choice to pick one movie from the pre-Focus era where it was October films and then into USA films and then finally focus so slash good machine good machine was basically a branch of usa films or was it october films uh good machine was its own sort of thing uh that was loosely associated right and and loosely associated with i believe universal at the time um Mm -hmm. that was james seamus and ted hope's company when we sort of run down the the long and winding road uh through film companies will will go into that but um 
Talk a little bit about our listener's choice, because we had some really good options, and it was a really close poll that I was like, we kind, kind of, of chose by. it to like not have a runaway leader, right? We wanted right. some like good competition. We wanted some competition, yeah. And for a Especially, while in the last hours, it was tied, it and was. that was very exciting. Um, yeah, we wanted something that had a little bit more competition. I thought it was cool that, like, our deep cut episode basically would yeah. be voted on by the listeners. Yep. Um, our options were this, obviously, The Muse, which won. Um, High Art, Lisa Cholodenko's uh, lesbian art film starring yes. Ali Sheedy, who won uh, the uh, Indie Spirit and some Critics Prizes. Also, uh, Patty Clarkson giving a wild performance. Yes. I was surprised that one didn't do so well in the poll because I know it has a lot of ardent fans. For a third place finisher, I thought it actually had pretty good support. Like it was going about maybe like five percentage points down from the two leaders, but like it was pretty, it was pretty solid. Yeah, it was the one that I voted for. Spoiler, but. Uh... <laughs> Just because, not only because, but as I, have I mentioned, maybe I have not mentioned on the podcast, but I've gotten into this kick of watching old Independent Spirit Award ceremonies on YouTube because, like, Film Independent has a whole bunch of them, especially from the late 90s and early 2000s, just in their entirety on their YouTube page, which is fantastic. So, of course, the first one I ran to was the 1998 Spirit Awards because I've been looking for this clip forever of Ali Sheedy's epic 10-minute acceptance speech for high art for best actress which she starts off oh my god rosanna arquette was one of the presenters and rosanna arquette and her are like best friends and like she like harpoons rosanna to like stand with her and i told rosanna who is one of my very best friends and has known me for about years um that she was going to have to lie. <laughs> because I would do it for her. And then she just goes on. And it's like, it's... I think in the intervening years, it became this sort of, like, legend at the spirits of this, like, unhinged, unending, like... Uh, <laughs> uh, almost like people sort of talk about it as if she was just, like, out of her mind. And, like... I've never been nominated for anything before. This may never happen again. It's actually a really, like, cogent speech about how her opportunities had essentially dried up. You have no idea how much the two of us have been through. <laughs> At least 12 years of not being able to get an audition for a sitcom. It's also just this, like, exuberant, like, hollering of names out into the room. And she thanks Bingham Ray, and she thanks Lisa Chilodenko and Patty Clarkson. And Rada Mitchell, where are you, my girlfriend? Yes. Where are you, Rada? Rada. Where? Come on, Rada, you're an Aussie. I know you'll stand up. Thank you. <laughs> Rada Mitchell. All this stuff, but it just goes on and on and on to the point where, like, Queen Latifah, who was the host that year, um, actually, like, sneaks on back, like, sneaks onto the stage behind her puts the statue on the little podium and then like grabs Rosanna Arquette and pulls her backstage because Rosanna couldn't like get away from her away from Allie. And then 
like minutes later as the speech is going on, Rosanna comes back on stage and is like, they really want you to get off. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Anybody who like, I highly recommend finding this, uh, this, 1998 spirit awards and like, we will put uh since it's only available as the uh, the full, full ceremony we'll put a timestamp in there we will you. put it on the tumblr page yeah it's it's wild so anyway that for that and many reasons because i do really love the film also uh i voted for high art but uh, it finished a strong third as i said uh, the one that I voted for, spoiler alert, we always try to put, like, one of these real ones no options in right. our listeners' choice polls. Right. Um, and that, um, in this poll, was The Last Seduction, which uh, stars Linda Fiorentino. It's basically, like, a sex thriller right. noir from the 90s that had a festival run, got amazing reviews for Linda Fiorentino, and had a late night HBO showing randomly, and that was found out before it had its theatrical release, and the movie was deemed ineligible right. by the Oscars. And and she this- still ended up winning like National Society of Film Critics Best Actress Prize or something like that. Like there was a large like groundswell. Of, of critical um, support, I, she yeah. was, she either won or was like runner up at New York Critics, right? Um, and it all ended basically with her. She won the Spirit Award, but she also got nominated for BAFTA for it. Yeah. Um, and so that there was, was the a only one that I haven't there. seen of our listeners' choice options, so right. I was rooting for that one. I also I hadn't seen that one, and I also hadn't seen the Muse. The other two I had seen. The fourth one was a oh, map of the I'm, world, I'm which even more was. Excited. Um, a, I believe Sigourney Weaver was Golden Globe nominated for A Map of the World. That is she a was. sort of domestic drama from 1999. That was part of Julianne Moore's big 1999, where she's in Magnolia and Cookie's Fortune and A Map of the World and maybe, oh, An Ideal, Ideal Husband. husband. Yep. Right. Um, and it's a, sort of a suburban, like Sigourney Weaver is watching her kid and Julianne Moore's kid and like... I mean, whatever, it's a 1999 movie, and spoiler, like, the whole crux of the movie is that Julianne Moore's kid dies in her care. And um, so it's like this harrowing sort of, like, domestic Sigourney Weaver goes to jail, David Strathairn is really hot. Right. Um, Her husband, or Moore's husband. He's Sigourney's husband, I believe, in that. I'm pretty sure. Yes, yes. Anyway, yeah, so it was a really good poll, and there was there was sort of uh, pockets of support for everything that we saw in terms of our comments on our Twitter uh, feed, which was very mm-hmm. cool, and uh, by a nose, by a, by a butterfly clip, uh, the muse, the muse uh, emerged victorious. By a single hair twist tie. <laughs> We've got to talk about the shit they do to Sharon Stone's hair in this movie. It's amazing. <laughs> It's absolutely amazing. Um, why Alva is it that every time? Why is it that every time they make a movie about the Greek muses, it's the wildest fucking shit? It's like this and Xanadu, and I don't need any other options. I don't need any other examples because, like, that's all I need. Um, yeah. So the muse comes out victorious, and we're definitely going to talk about this movie because there is stuff to talk about with this movie. Um, but before we do. I want to talk about the October films of it all. The whole sort of reason why we wanted to do an initial episode from the pre-focus era. Because, like, again, as somebody who I was attuned to Oscars and I was attuned to 
uh, the movies at the time, but I wasn't really attuned to like corporate studio politics mergers stuff back then. But I remember being aware of the sort of quick progression that went from October films to USA films to focus features. Because mm-hmm. at the time that, especially like at this year, which is 1999, The Muse is 1999, um, October was a really, really prominent art house distributor. They weren't Miramax. Miramax was the big dog in the yard, obviously, when it came to indie films. But like October had their big year in 1996 where they had Oscar nominees uh, with Secrets and Lies and also Breaking the Waves. The the history of October is that it's founded in 1991 by Bingham Ray and Jeff Lipsky. Uh, Bingham Ray, who was this like big major indie uh, film producer. I remember during that Ali Sheedy speech, she actually says he's like the only honest man in the film business or something like that. So he's, he was very he well was respected. Beloved. He passed away in the past decade 2012 Um, he died he had a series mm -hmm. of strokes while at the sundance film festival in 2012 and died shortly thereafter um very sad um but so bingham ray and jeff lipsky found october films in 1991 essentially because they needed a distributor for mike lee's uh life is sweet and they just sort of made you know built their own company to do that and sort of during these like early years 1990s as the indie film movement was progressing um they have these films from these like either big at the time or were emerging indie filmmakers so like they make greg Araki's the living end victor nunez's ruby in paradise which was the ashley judd uh movie that's kind probably of probably the closest thing to making our final four that didn't in yes. terms of what the listener's choice would be and that movie kind of like established ashley judd who like at that moment like her sister and her mother were the more famous ones in the family. They were the Judds, you know, and um, that Grandpa, sort of... Grandpa, made... tell me about the good old days. <laughs> uh, they make Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, which was like his first, either his first movie or his first indie breakthrough. Um, obviously, we mentioned The Last Seduction, John Dahl's The Last Seduction. They did uh, Lost Highway with David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa Cholodenko, as I mentioned, for High Art. Robert Altman's Cookie's Fortune. They have the Oscar breakthrough in 1996, as I said, with Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies and Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves. They also get a Best Actor nomination in 1997 for The Apostle and um, 1998 Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress nominations for Emily Watson and Rachel Griffiths in Hillary and Jackie. So like by the late 90s, they had really started to break through into the Oscar realm. Mm-hmm. And then in 1997, they're purchased by Universal, which is like, this is where the sort of like foreboding music sort of starts by anybody. It's just like, oh, you were purchased by a major film studio. And then it's also when it gets like flimsy between what was a USA film, right. what was Good Machine, what was October films. Right. So in 1999, Universal then sells... Uh, October films to Barry Diller. Barry Diller was this sort of, is still, uh, this media mogul. He ran USA Network at the time, the television network USA. He either was or would soon to be married to Diane von Furstenberg. That's sort of the thing I know about Barry Diller is that he's Diane von Furstenberg's husband. Um, (laughs) 
he merges October films with Gramercy pictures. Now, Gramercy, to sort of take a little detour off of this, was a sort of co-venture between Universal and Polygram. And they had a ton of big successes in the 1990s. They did uh, either as a uh, production company or just as a distributor. So they had Dazed and Confused with Richard Linklater, Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is a Best Picture nominee in 1994, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave, um, The Usual Suspects, Dead Man Walking, Fargo, like huge, huge uh, hit for Fargo, um, Bound, the Last Days of Disco, uh, Elizabeth towards the end, uh, right around, obviously, 1999. So that's when Diller merges October and Gramercy. And then because he had uh, was running USA Network at the time, uh, turns them into USA Films, which burns very brightly for a very short amount of time and has like big, mm-hmm. big, big Oscar successes with being John Malkovich, um, Topsy Turvy, which was like Mike Lee's biggest film to date, it got a screenplay nomination. I want to say, is that correct? I think that's correct. It was probably, uh, you know, maybe sixth or seventh. I was going to uh, say if it, in the Oscar Best Picture. If run. there's a top ten that year, Topsy Turvy definitely makes it. It's a huge critical success. Um, they did Traffic. They did The Man Who Wasn't There, and then right at the end of. Uh, the USA Films tenure, they did Gosford Park with Robert Altman. And then 2002, Gosford Park gets released. Uh, it's a 2001 film, but it gets released in like January of 2002. And then, so in 2002, USA Films is acquired by Vivendi, this like big, huge multinational. They merge it with Good Machine. Now, Good Machine was a production company that had been founded by. James Seamus, the great, you know, writer-producer James Seamus, who, among other things, would eventually do um, Brokeback Mountain, and also would be, like, incredibly synonymous with what would become Focus Features. And Seamus and Ted Hope um, had founded Good Machine, and they had done a bunch of Ang Lee movies. They were sort of, like, very in very early with filmmakers like Ang Lee, with Todd Haynes. They produced Safe with Nicole Holofcener, they uh, who we talked about um, last I week. I believe like their first time with distribution, not just being a production company. I'm pretty sure they decided to do their own distribution for Todd Salanza's happiness because mm. of yes. controversy there. Yes. Um, and you, you find this when you sort of dig back into the history of a lot of these 1990s indie distributors especially is... A lot of it is sort of necessity being the mother of invention, where it's just like, we mm-hmm. need somebody to distribute this movie. Nobody's doing it. We're going to have to do this ourselves. Um, so, yeah. the And so I think Good Machine at that point had established a relation, uh, a reputation as being a very sort of filmmaker-friendly um, distributor and production company. And so... Good Machine merges with USA Films, and now it's sort of this, at this point, it's like this uh, Voltron of many different, very successful indie distributors. And then, so 2002, that's then what becomes Focus Features. Again, cue soothing uh, title card. And there you have it. But it's kind of, the history of Focus Features is a little bit, you know, take the Miramax parts of the 1990s indie uh, boom, 
out, and you get essentially all the component parts of of what become focus feature. It's kind of this interesting rise too, because like I think we kind of I've been really fascinated lately with like the '90s American independent cinema landscape because like it does have this whole building sense, especially as like it becomes more and more embraced in the Oscars. But it feels like a totally different um, thing to what like the independent film landscape is today. You know, right where we have things like Netflix, but you right. have these more organic successes and like you have a lot of movies that have stood the test of time um yes yeah things like high art um right so yeah it's fascinating the other thing is and again not to make this entire podcast series about me watching old independent spirit awards but like (laughs) watching the ones watching the ones from the late 1990s versus watching the ones from later on into the 2000s you really get a sense of that in the 90s the independent film community did feel more like a community unto itself. And that wasn't to say that like those people weren't also making studio films or li- at least like those actors mm-hmm. weren't in studio films because they were. But like you really got a sense of like you watched those ceremonies and they have their own little like um in jokes and you know sort of businessy references and also like the people who show up every year were like Jennifer Tilly's there every year and Ileana Douglas is there every year and um Tim Roth and Don Cheadle and sort of you have the sort of interlopers who come in every year where like there's a major movie and like oh Robert Duvall is nominated for the Apostle this year so like Robert Duvall's in the room but like there's this center of the independent film community that, I mean, they had like, this was back when they were doing like keynote addresses every year at these Mm -hmm. things. So like James Seamus gets up there the one year and God bless him talks about, and kind of ironically considering that like what, you know, good machine and focus features would end up being, you know, under the wing of a universal, but talks about it had been just in the wake of the AOL time Warner merger, which was like the biggest thing to date at that point in terms of like entertainment media corporate mergers and talking about sort of like being very wary and talking about the dangers of like what this means for the future of creativity and independent filmmaking and whatever incredibly prophetic speech about like the squeeze that would be put on independent films and like as he's doing this they're like panning around the room and like people are getting up to go to the bathroom and like chloe sevigny is like making faces and people don't even have cell phones yet and yet they're like busying themselves on whatever little devices they have at the time and but <laughs> someone's got a game boy right and i was just like i felt so bad i was just like james Seamus is trying to tell you the future he's like he's the Patty fucking... clarkson pulls out her tamagotchi right it's like he's the terminator he's come from the future you don't understand and um <laughs> well but, see here's my thing i was gonna say like a you're describing what these uh, 90s Indie Spirit Awards were. And it's like, you look at them now where they are nominating and awarding movies uh, funded and entirely produced by Netflix. Right. Um, Right. Movies that uh, qualify purely because their budget is low enough, even though they were produced by studios. Um, Right. And it's because the indie landscape and the indie apparatus is like, it's just a totally different thing. And there's, I mean, it sounds like I'm being like, they don't play music videos on MTV anymore about it, but like, (laughs) 
the idea of independent film used to be much more actually independent. And even in the like, you those go back like, and you look at the '90s Indie Spirit Award nominees and winners, and they are way cooler than they are now. Now, yeah. like I've said this before, and I'll probably keep saying it: like the fact that you can just buy a membership and the perk is you get to vote on the Indie Spirit Awards. It just turns it into this like people's choice awards of people who follow and care about movies. And it just, it it ends up reflecting the Oscars because that's the movies people are already talking about. Like it doesn't, it like those days feel gone of the indie spirits where like, like for example, I love her. We're recording this on her birthday. Um, like, why is uh, Renee Zellweger winning for Judy at, Independ- right. In, right. at Indie Spirit Awards? Why is Laura Dern winning for a movie that was always produced and funded right. by Netflix? Right. Right. You're right. Um, and so, I, as I said, the story of Focus Features is sort of, it's kind of the story of that progression of independent film from, mm-hmm. you know, the true independent years of October through those like middle, uh, you know, squishy years. And now where focus now is just a, uh, an apparatus of universal. And that doesn't mean that we don't still love, you know, some of the movies that focus puts out and we do. And that's why we're doing this, this uh, mini series on it. But like, it is a very reflective of, the evolution of what we think of as independent mm-hmm. film at this point. So that's why we're doing this miniseries. And we're kicking it off with The Muse. Yes. I'm sure you love to hear me blather on for 25 minutes about corporate <laughs> mergers. But uh, now we're going to talk about we this pi- wild-ass fucking movie. Podcast. What's that? I said we are pivoting to becoming a business podcast. Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, This movie is bug nuts crazy, though, Chris. This movie's... So fun. I remember this movie as being more fun than it is. And I'm, yeah. I think that's because it takes a good 20, 25 minutes for Sharon Stone to... She shows up, like you see her. Yeah. But for her to actually be a character in the movie, it takes a long time. <laughs> so I think this movie is awful. And... Oh. <laughs> Um, I'll, it'll be a fun conversation as we sort of go through it. Um, but let's sort of get past the hump of, we are now a half an hour into this, so let's get past the hump of a, uh, of a plot description. The 60-second plot description is the Sharon Stone of this episode, because it's taken a half hour to get there. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, and it's gonna ask for, uh, a suite at the plaza. Um, all right, so... This week we are talking about, we're kicking off our Focus Features miniseries with the October film's release, The Muse, written and directed by Albert Brooks, uh, also co-written by uh, Monica Johnson with, uh, with Albert Brooks, starring Albert Brooks, Sharon Stone, Andy McDowell, Jeff Bridges, Mark Forstein, Bradley Whitford, a whole host of cameoing celebrity actors and directors we definitely are going to talk about the cameos celebrity actors and directors and restaurateurs uh in uh, one very prominent case actually it premiered on august 27th 1999 it uh got one golden globe nomination that we will definitely talk about oh yeah before we do chris i'm going to put one minute on the clock if you want to do a 60-second plot description. 
Sure. All right. Ready to talk about the muse starting now. Uh, what's the tea, honey bee? Steven Phillips is a uh, Hollywood screenwriter. He's an Oscar nominee, but now he's told that his career is over. Um, anyway, to uh, like. He goes and meets his friend to talk about this. His friend is played by Jeff Bridges, and he, uh, Jeff Bridges reveals that, like, he has this new career boost because he has been dealing with a living muse played by Sharon Stone. Uh, so he sets, uh, uh, Albert Brooks, Steve Phillips up with the muse. She ends up having to, seconds. like, run over his life basically in finances she wants a room at the plaza she wants a waldorf salad at three in the morning she blah 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 blah. eventually she moves into his house and like ingratiates herself with steven's wife played by andy mcdowell who used to want to be a baker and then all of a sudden she is uh almost immediately a baker because sharon stone says so um and then uh anyway it turns out that she is uh, uh escaped from a mental institution and then albert brooks makes this terrible sounding movie about an aquarium and time. Very good. Okay, so you think that this movie is awful. I do. I don't think that you are wrong. <laughs> but I do think that Sharon Stone gives one of those performances that, like, latches her hooks into this terrible movie, hauls it upon her back, and turns it into a good movie with her performance. Just her performance alone makes this work. And she's acting, cameos we'll she's acting like she's in a good movie, is what she's doing, to, uh, to paraphrase <laughs> She is it. acting like she's in a good movie, but she's in a bad movie. She is, of um, course, listen, I love Sharon Stone. I love any time that Sharon Stone steps onto a screen... Um, I don't know why we were talking about it this week, but the uh, the Gap turtleneck uh, outfit she wore to the Oscars was a talking point this week on Twitter, and I couldn't have been happier because I uh, love to celebrate Sharon Stone. Um, why does my timer keep going off? Jesus. Um, I also think that Sharon Stone is definitely the reason that this movie was pushed over the edge to win the listener's choice poll yes and partly because her book just came out too yes. which i still need to read like people are like how have you not it. read that yet because of course i will read that book but yeah. it's like um every ounce of my time has been sucked away with this oscar season yeah um so i look forward to right reading that. so at this point we're at the tail end of the 1990s the 1990s is like Sharon's big decade, where it starts off with her in Total Recall, pivots very quickly to Basic Instinct. She becomes like infamous sex icon Sharon Stone. Because of that, she makes a bunch of uh, erotic thrillers, sort of like mainstream erotic thrillers like Sliver. And um, uh, what's the Stallone movie she's in? That's not like an erotic thriller. Specialist. The Specialist. Everything that she's in sort of gets marketed as sexier than it is kind of because Mm -hmm. she's in it where it's like intersection where she's basically playing like the spurned wife of Richard Gere. Um, Like she's not the sexy one in that movie. That's Lolita Davidovich. But like that film is marketed as like sexy sex thriller uh, intersection. It's just like, no, it's not. It's just because Sharon Stone's in it. You fucking maniacs. (laughs) Like, um, but uh, 1995 she's in martin scorsese's casino she wins she rules the golden globe award like triumphing over all the other sort of like 
eventual Oscar nominees that year. She beats out Susan Sarandon and Meryl Streep and Elizabeth Shue. Uh, wins the Golden Globe for Casino. I think when she accepts the award, she just walks up and she starts to stammer a little bit. And finally, she just goes, well, I mean, it's it's a miracle. Let's just say it. It's a miracle. It's so <laughs> endearing. She gets an Oscar nomination for it. It's her only Oscar nomination. And, uh, and I think that's sort of the high point. And then already then after that, the... Roles start getting a little bit more spotty. The career starts getting a little bit sort of choppier. And the muse is a good role for her, right? We're like, I don't know if she'd really gotten to be funny like this before. And like some of it is really dumb funny. Like this movie is almost, there's times where this movie and like what it asks her to do feel on par with like an Adam Sandler movie, right? Like, yeah, it's so like silly, silly and like, yes. farcical and right. Yeah, um, but it's still exciting because she hadn't really done comedy like this before. The whole movie kind of hinges on her being sort of an effortlessly magnetic personality, which, like, yeah, Sharon can do that. Like, that's sort of what you get Sharon for. My big problem with this movie is I think the tone stuff is kind of all over the place. I'm not sure whether it knows how much of a fantasy it wants to be or how much of an allegory about the creative process it wants to be. And sometimes it just seems very content to let the joke be that Martin Scorsese is there playing himself or let the joke be that... um, like James Cameron shows up and gives her a, a Tiffany box. There's a whole thing about all the men, all the Going men she's Tiffany. ever inspired give her uh, gifts as sort of tributes. And they all come <laughs> she from She just Tiffany. has this mantle of Fabergé eggs. Right, and right. Uh, right, and... tiaras and, and such. And so they make a joke about like, is it the, and they're referring to the heart of the ocean or whatever. So there's a lot of like insidery movie stuff. And I think sometimes the movie feels content to sort of rest on those laurels. And other times it feels like the film has a little bit of an ambition to be, to sort of defy what the setup of the movie is. Because the setup of the movie is essentially this beautiful woman is going to kind of bagger vance her way into shepherding albert brooks's career right and Mm -hmm. i think sometimes the movie admirably sort of like wants to transcend that a little bit and make sharon stone's character more complicated and also make the andy mcdowell character a little less typically like shrewish suspicious wife so andy mcdowell's character gets to have her own relationship with sharon stone her own career she's the one whose career flourishes and And it's way more interesting than the albert brooks stuff because steven is fucking insufferable the whole time which also there's no arc to him like there's no arc to him whatsoever yeah and it makes you like sharon stone's muse sarah instantly because like the second he meets her in 
every possible way. He just wants the easy out. He just he literally wants a genie to just make it happen for him, and she yeah. does nothing but make things difficult for him and yeah. like put him through the ringer. And like that, of course, makes you like her a lot more. And uh, there could be like a real rascally or like uh, stick him in the ribs kind of uh, way for her to perform it and she doesn't she basically is just kind of daffy the whole time in a way that like she doesn't realize how much she gets under his skin um, in a way that I found really funny yes I also I wrote down in my notes that a lot of the heavy lifting of her characterization beyond Sharon's performance is done by the hairstyle for her, where there's just so much like, oh, she's a muse, she's Greek, she's whatever. Her hair has to look the most windswept we've ever seen. So, like, literally, there's just, like, 18 metric tons of product in her hair, just, like, wisping her hair every which way. At one point, she has, like, a hundred butterfly clips in, on her head, just sort of like making sure <laughs> that her career, that her, her hair is so sprightly and so just like whatever. And then there's the little twist ties that she has with the little colorful rubber bands in her hair and every other scene. It was like, take ten things off before you leave the house. Like, who, like, God bless the uh, the makeup and hairstyling company. Uh, Listen, me exiting quarantine, my <laughs> personal style is going to be Sarah Little in the Muse. She is always in some type of flowy print thing, the type of thing that is reasonable for you to wear as pajamas or wear on a beach, and she is never doing either. Um, so I, I, yes, she is my style inspo. I think if I have a major problem with the film, though, it's that I don't know, like, the stakes are ostensibly, is Steven going to be able to write this script and to sell this script? And yet, we're, it's so vague when it comes to what this script is supposed to be. It's set in an aquarium, he wants to cast Jim Carrey, yada yada, but also he's not likable enough for us to care whether he writes the script or if it ever gets made. You kind of feel like you don't want it to get made. It sounds absolutely terrible. So, like, that's kind of out. Andy McDowell becomes a success so quickly at baking cookies. And, like, first of all, my major impression from this movie is I want that goddamn oatmeal chocolate chip cookie. Like, immediately. (laughs) The way everybody talks about it looks... So, like... Wolfgang Puck loved it. Wolfgang Puck is in several scenes in this movie playing himself as, like, he's essentially the fifth lead of this movie after Jeff Bridges. Um, Okay, because her cookies take off because Sarah gets them into Spago because she knows Wolfgang Puck. Right. And, like, convinced him to use goat cheese or something. Um, (laughs) Right. But, like... Would Spago sell cookies? No! I don't think so. I've never been to Spago. I can't tell, but, like, I don't think so. How fancy is Spago? Because that was the thing. I was like, I don't know L.A. enough. I feel like it used to maybe be fancy yes. know, 20 years ago. Like, there's a Spago in, like, several cookies. airports now, right? Like, there's a, like Wolfgang Puck is, like, right. like you know, a, a very, very, like, commercial brand at this point. But I do feel like 
culturally from everything you hear about spago it just doesn't sound like the kind of place that would sell cookies but right like, like you you show up and like the um waiter arrives at your table table and it's like tonight our special is a chilean sea bass with watercress and our special dessert is a cookie <laughs> is a butterscotch chip cookie from laura <laughs> from, um from a screenwriter's house <laughs> so but so but andy mcdowell's character finds success so quickly and that like and uncomplicatedly that like there's not really stakes there and then two-thirds of the way through this movie when they introduce this idea that sarah is not a muse but a an escaped mental patient who is uh, a multiple personality, they say. Uh, it's uh, it's Dakin Matthews, who is probably best known as the principal from the early seasons of Gilmore Girls, the the um, uh, Chilton uh, headmaster uh, from Gilmore Girls, and then Conchetta Tomei, who I know best as uh, the titular mom from Don't Tell Mom, the Babysitter's Dead. But she was also in. Uh, <laughs> she's also. I think she was on China Beach. She was on a bunch of things. So anyway, they show up as like as kind of these like daffy doctors who like show up. Yeah, and, like and laughing the whole time, the trying to get into studio all tours. Over the place, right? Yeah, and. So then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, she's an escape mental patient. And that scene ends with we find that like Sarah has like rapunzeled her way out of the second story bathroom and is like gone. And that's essentially the last we ever really see of her. We sort of hear of, you know, other things that she's like uh that she's maybe doing. She gets Rob Reiner the movie instead, and Albert Brooks's career is down the toilet. And we don't really see her again until the end when she shows up as apparently a new personality where she's a studio head now and like i don't want to bring realism into this because of course the idea the whole idea of a movie about a plausible you know a greek muse is that like it's magical realism or whatever but i think the movie turns that switch on and off kind of randomly when it needs to like this movie doesn't really have a good grip of farce um okay i definitely like this movie more than you do because like i i i'm I, it gives me what i need by sharon stone being yeah uh a delightful um and i think like the movie needs her to be that delightful whatever my okay my problem with this movie beyond um the fact that this movie that everybody's so excited about that Stephen Phillips is working on where he's, uh, you know, Jim Carrey in an aquarium, blah, 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 blah <laughs> right. sounds like a terrible movie that would be dumped in February and trashed, right? Right. Um, but everybody's so impressed by the idea. My problem with this movie is even by late 90s standards, it feels really out of touch. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of, like what's like it, it, it like you can see you're everything that comes out of like steven's mouth kind of proves the point that he is past his prime right but from the albert brooks angle it feels like no but they're all wrong but it's like okay but you think spago will serve cookies right um like the only jewelry that exists is Tiffany. Is Tiffany, right. Exactly. Like, yeah. It feels so um, basic male amber. understanding yeah. of yeah. 
industry of fashion of women right um, right what do women like women like fancy hotels and bathrobes you know what i mean like that kind of a thing and jewelry (laughs) they like sparkly jewels that's my problem with the movie and like i it it does feel like it's references to Hollywood, except for the cameos, which I do think the cameos are great. Um, yes, Scorsese's like legitimately. The thing about Martin Scorsese, Scorsese is, is amazing. He could movie. be a very successful character actor if he wanted to. If you ever watch Quiz Show, he's like phenomenally good in Quiz Show as like a real like he's a villainous character. He's not cameoing as himself but even in this where he's cameoing as himself he's a goddamn scream he's so funny like it's the funniest scene in the movie yeah because he is martin martin scorsese playing the uber cliche of what people think martin scorsese was do you especially in the 90s because like he's come down from the coke days since but oh right but he's still like a goddamn motor mouth like yeah do you remember i can't remember the product it was selling but he was in a series of commercials and they would air i think they they aired on television too but they would always air during the pre-roll of movies where um it's like they're filming like a regular commercial like scorsese steps in to essentially just like direct the commercial and he's talking to uh it's like a mom with like a sick kid in bed or whatever and she's just like well i i I would have i would have you over here and uh the mother should have a motivation she should have like you know she should be hiding liquor bottles around the around the house and blah 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 blah. and just um and playing into this like uh, not only the director persona but again talking a mile a goddamn minute and it's I think he's really um attuned to what his persona, her sort of like public persona is. And I just think he's just really, really incredibly funny. Whereas and like contrast that with um James Cameron's cameo, which is, is very basically stiff. playing a dim bulb. Right. It's so funny right. that like James Cameron is supposed to just be like stupid and superstitious. Right. Right, exactly. Um, it's the other thing is just like, and again, I'm very happy accepting magical realism for a movie, but like this idea that she is an escaped mental patient and it's just like, okay, who like escapes periodically and it's just like, okay, but like, and I guess it's a commentary on Hollywood that this person could sort of like ingratiate herself with so many of the greatest, you know, filmmakers in the, in town without without ever sort of like giving herself away is and i think a smarter movie too where like the punchline at the end of the movie is she shows up as an executive for a movie studio the idea should be that's funny but also that's probably the perfect job for her right like if it was a smarter movie one that felt more in touch with like what the business actually is like or like what the culture of hollywood is like um and more precise with like trying to skewer it a little bit yeah it would be a lot better yes i think the other thing is and again this comes into where sometimes it feels like it's an allegory of the creative process where so much of the movie becomes like really little sort of like oh i've got to like what do i have to do to keep this woman happy and it's like a lot of just like a lot of it has to do with him picking up the waldorf salad or moving her into the guest house or moving her into the house and like all these sort of like little um procedural almost like things and it's like i get it like 
the the work you have to do to keep your creative juices stimulated or whatever like i get that that part of it is this is an allegory and yet so much of the movie becomes these like little menial tasks that he has to do and it takes up a ton of the movie where like so much of the movie is like them moving furniture in their house or him like grocery shopping for the muse or whatever and it's just like it never really feels like it's coming from the perspective i think what you were getting at or like it never puts it like into perspective or puts a button on it in a way that it feels conscious of that that like the idea is to be successful creatively you also have to be able to be a person (laughs) right um or you like have to put in the work into your life because maybe that's part of the reason why Andy McDowell is so immediately successful is she's done that work already so now like she can focus on the creative side right um and I guess the idea is that, like, she gets him rattled. And by rattling him, sort of opens him up to inspiration and ideas. But that only really happens the one time when she takes him, when she makes him take her to the aquarium. Like, that's really the only sort of, like, moment of inspiration. We don't really see what doing all of these, like, little menial tasks for her is doing for his creative process beyond just sort of, like, again, rattling him. And... I don't know. It also, like, again, like, not to get hung up on the fact this movie he's writing sounds like dog shit. Yeah. Is, like, it, you can't sell the movie's point that, like, he does finally have some creative success or does come throughout the other side of, like, I have to be a person. I have to actually support my wife when, like, the movie that he's making never sounds good. Right. Right. Another thing that I missed in my uh, plot description is... Rob Reiner shows up at that aquarium when yes. he is when uh, Stevens initially inspired, and then at one point Rob Reiner is making the same exact movie that Steven wants to write because we're I kind of we're meant to think like she has now taken this film and given it to Rob Reiner because right. as a sort of like a as a act of payback against uh, Albert Brooks. Not sure when that could have ever happened based off of the logic of what's going on in this movie. But I also love and think it's funny if the movie had pushed this forward more that the idea of Rob Reiner constantly just lurking in the background (laughs) like a Hollywood (laughs) specter that could just like be the one that casts it asunder. Yeah. (laughs) Though you don't take him seriously as a threat. Um, That was very funny to me. I want to talk about Jeff Bridges for a second, because he's he's in this movie a handful of times. He's essentially just playing the best friend. He's the and yes. in, this, uh, in this film, and Jeff Bridges. Um, he doesn't really have a storyline beyond just he's the one who, he's essentially the Sidney Pollock in Eyes Wide Shut of this. He's like, uh, uh, there's a muse. If you, if you go to whatever, <laughs> uh, there's a muse. Um, and, but it's fascinating to watch this movie comes out the year after The Big Lebowski, and yet so much of his career into the 2000s sort of moves into the camp of he's playing the dude or sort of like offshoots of the dude or like like grizzled Cowboys. grizzled bridges, right? Where like this is sort of the tail end of that earlier Jeff Bridges, and it's just like, oh, right, he didn't always play 
mumbly grumblies. He played... He played hotties. He played hot, sort of like slick kind of guys. He was slick in The Fisher King. He was slick in The Fabulous Baker Boys. He was, you know, um, this, like, dreamboat in The Mirror Has Two Faces. And... Bookish dreamboat, but a dreamboat. Right, no, well, yeah, it was, that was the the gag of that, right? Where it's like the both of them take off their glasses and they're very, uh, they're very attractive. (laughs) Um... Uh, and yet, foreplay to him is watching Lawrence of Arabia at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I've got to watch that movie. Excellent movie. Um, but sort of as we move into the 2000s, it's like, even like something like Door in the Floor, he's sort of like, he's slovenly, right? He's a, uh, and obviously like the Oscar for Crazy Heart, the nomination for True Grit, all this sort of stuff. This That's like later period Jeff Bridges. Whereas like this is an interesting reminder of Oh, this was the end of that previous iteration of Jeff Bridges. Very true. He's quite handsome. I like Andy McDowell in this movie. I just want to say that. Yes. Like, Andy McDowell, one of the actresses I feel like in my lifetime have been sidelined with not great characters, but you always love her. Yeah. Um, She's just such a likable screen presence. She's easily the most likable character in this movie. She can sell you on some, like bullshit she can make some she can give uh things that are very thin like this movie uh a whole lot of life i thought the casting in this movie is pretty uh canny i think casting sharon stone is obviously very smart casting andy mcdowell as the wife that's like that's a really good move you cast mark forstein as the studio flack and Bradley Whitford as the manager, and it's just like really, you're really hitting the nail on the uh, sort of craven uh, cogs in the system. Also, oddly, uh, uh, West Wing pre reunion at this point, uh, 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 both sides of the courting uh, Donna on the West Wing uh, coin is Bradley Whitford and Mark <laughs> Feuerstein. Um, yeah, it's. I think a lot of this movie, you get the feeling that the inspiration for this movie really did probably come from Albert Brooks in a meeting where somebody said the word edgy like 17 different times. And he's just like, what is edgy? Why does everybody keep saying that? Because that feels like a very, all the scenes with him and Feuerstein's character feel very much um, pulled from life and also like very inspirational, very much like, oh, this is what made albert brooks want to write this movie about yeah. the frustrations of trying to make a movie in a kind of changing uh, uh, film landscape and where like there isn't nobody wants to make lost in america anymore nobody wants to make defending your life anymore that kind of a thing well i mean we were talking about this off mic a little bit before getting into it albert brooks's only nominate oscar nomination which like still kind of surprises me is supporting actor for broadcast news. He'd never gotten like a screenplay nomination for any of his scripts um, or any of his films that he made. And like, those are re he, I mean, like I wouldn't say they're cult movies now, but like there's a whole Albert Brooks fandom out there that loves like lost in America, defending your life. Even mother has its own, (laughs) the Albert Brooks mother, not the (laughs) Darren. Can't imagine. We are the fan club for the Darren Aronofsky mother, but yes, exactly. Yeah. Who would Albert Brooks play in Darren Aronofsky's mother? Oh God. Um, like Kristen Wiig's boss. <laughs> I don't know. Something. Or like what Bible figure? Maybe he's, uh, uh, I don't know, Noah or something. 
That Who is Noah? He he is Noah. He is the like guide on the way to the house. That's like over there. There. He's the <laughs> He's one. He's the realtor who sh- all sold of the, the uninvited house. guests into right. the house. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's interesting because Oscars and especially like screenwriters, sort of like, and again, like Albert Brooks is also a famous actor, famous director, but. Almost think, nominated for Drive. Right. Golden Globe nominated for Drive uh, and doesn't get the Oscar nomination for that. But I think you would feel like the most logical Oscar nomination for him to get gotten in his career is for screenwriting. And I almost mentioned this when we talked about Nicole Holof Center uh, last week and sort of the the almost like randomness of what filmmakers get to be the ones who get like early screenplay nominations that are sort of like one-off screenplay nominations where like usually the screenplay categories are taken up with your best picture nominees, your best picture contenders. And then there's like a sprinkling few for kind of like creative outliers. And especially you'll Mm -hmm. find that in like original screenplay. And this is how like Whit Stillman got a nomination for Metropolitan back in the day or uh, more recently, something like The Big Sick gets a nomination for um, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. Or um, I'm trying to think of like in, like Noah Baumbach getting a nomination for The Squid and the Whale. Stuff like that. Where like you don't really show up elsewhere on the Oscar ballot, but you get a nomination. And for somebody like Noah Baumbach, then that sort of seeds, plants the seeds for a later uh, success with Oscar, with your subsequent movies. We saw that with Wes Anderson, where he got a nomination Mm -hmm. for the Royal Tenenbaums in 2001. And that sort of at least puts him on the landscape. And sometimes that happens for sort of acclaimed creative outliers like that. But like, it didn't happen for you. Like you don't get a screenplay nomination for lost in America, even though it's an incredibly acclaimed movie, you didn't get a screenplay nomination for lovely and amazing or, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? For Nicole Holof center. So, well, I wonder if in Albert Brooks's case is like those movies are considered more in that vein now than they were at the time. Yeah. It's also interesting to me that this is the movie he makes after Mother, which Debbie Reynolds was like considered very close to getting nominated yes. for that movie. And like that might have been his first awards narrative. And like this movie, The Muse, has a very um uh like tenuous, almost like barely looking down at kind of looking down its nose at the Oscars a little bit. It, in like the way that like awards and stuff are considered. And like, I could absolutely see Albert Brooks's experience, like in the awards race for his previous movie, informing this movie in a way that like he's, I mean, I don't want to use a word like thirsty for it, like clearly eager for it or thinks that he deserves it, but is looking askance at the whole awards Thing. The timing of Albert Brooks's mother is somewhat unlucky for him, right? Where it's 1996, which we've talked about before, where the studio movies kind of bomb out that year. And that is the year that Oscar turns fully to the indies that year. So the mm-hmm. original screenplay nominees in 1996, 
four out of the five of them are the are, are best picture nominees, and that's only back when there were only five best picture nominees. So Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, Shine are all original screenplay nominees, and three out of those four are indies. So if Albert Brooks was trying to was you know maybe going for the indie screenplay slot. You're real out of luck in 1996 if you're not a Best Picture nominee. And then the fifth one that year was John Sayles' Lone Star, which gets to be – that's your outlier. That is your critically acclaimed auteur screenplay. And it's Sayles gets it instead of of Brooks that year, which makes sense because Lone Star was a very big critical favorite that year. And – uh, it's just sort of just a little bit of unlucky timing. Maybe if, you know, Mother was the year before that or the year after that, maybe his fortunes are a little bit different. And Debbie Reynolds is as well. Yeah. And Debbie I'm Reynolds pretty is sure well. that is the era where we get the Debbie Reynolds impersonating Meryl video, which like, uh. if you have never, if you have never seen a like complete dragging, uh, watch Debbie Reynolds impersonate Meryl's acting style. Well, and it's funny because. Carrie Fisher and Meryl were very good friends. Meryl played Carrie Fisher, obviously, uh, in uh, or a or version of Carrie Fisher in Postcards from the Edge. So you think it's you think it's just a mother hating her child's friends? Kind of. It <laughs> felt that way, right? It kind of felt that way. Sort of how uh, um, you. I always talk about uh, Noah Baumbach's While We're Young being a movie made by somebody who hates his girlfriend's friends. <laughs> um, it does feel like that way a little bit of just sort of because like, like, uh, yeah, Carrie and Meryl were, you know, obviously very close. And I think, um, and I also feel like I can imagine Debbie maybe feels some sort of way about postcards from the edge in general. Um, but yeah, <laughs> well, that yeah. always, that was always an interesting wrinkle whenever I watched that clip. I'm just like, oh, right. Like, uh, that's, that's Carrie's good pal. Yeah. This movie and awards though, it feels so like, uh, Albert Brooks is saying all of these people are idiots, but also he doesn't like he is only like a foot in in like understanding the ethos too. Right. Whereas like Mike Feuerstein has the couch from Saving Private Ryan <laughs> and like is very proud of it in this movie. Um, yeah, that joke should be funnier than it is. It's funnier me saying it than it is in the movie. Um, but then like it opens with him winning some type of humanitarian prize part of the joke is like there's nothing about him that is a humanitarian i mean they give them this prize and that's the ethos of hollywood right but literally the awards are called the humanitarian awards right (laughs) which i was like okay you could have you could have like Maybe you were just trying to avoid uh, shitting on one particular group in particular, but it could have maybe also had some specificity because there is so much vagueness in terms of like Hollywood, you know, yeah, the creative process in this movie. You could tell this You're really movie... making me like this movie even less. Than Sorry, I don't mean it. to. There's a lot of I will say there's a lot of really like uh, references and sort of jokes in this movie that that caught me off guard in kind of a good way. Um, I, it's not every day that you see a movie with a Margot Hemingway joke. It's just not like you're you're not gonna <laughs> get that. You can also really tell that this movie was written in the wake of the. Like all during the Titanic Oscar wave, where like at the beginning, uh, Brooks's character wins uh, his award and says, "I'm the king of the room," and it's just like, and it like goes over like a lead balloon. But and then of course you have the Cameron cameo. But there's a lot, there's a lot of Titanic uh, references in this movie. Okay, but Sarah's 
a recommendation to James Cameron is to stay away from the water. He's not listening to her. Avatar 2 is going to Pandora's oceans. It's all going to be underwater. We've all seen that photo of Kate Winslet and her wings. Well, but now we uh now I'm skeptical as to how successful it's going to be if uh, if Sharon Sharon as the muse told him to stay away from the water. So we'll see. Yeah. Um I also don't think that an actress who is named Sharon should play a character named Sarah. It's very confusing. <laughs> they should have changed that. They should have just let her be called Sharon. They should have had her character be named Susan and then it could be a uh a parent trap joke watching this movie the whole time i was that weak that british weakest link character uh contestant who didn't know who greta thunberg was and uh was just like sharon (laughs) i also thought the idea of stephen wright playing a character named stan spielberg who is stephen spielberg's cousin was a very funny payoff to that set piece where it's like where uh, Brooks doesn't get to park in the lot for the Steven Spielberg building. And he has to like traverse Walk nine miles, traverse this entire Hollywood backlot. And like the scene of him walking up that hill where it looks like his legs are just like a thousand pounds each was very funny. I thought that was uh, I thought that was some good um, comedy. What are some of the other cameos in this? Jennifer Tilly shows up very early. <laughs> Lorenzo Lamas. Lorenzo Lamas. Uh, who like, oh, that's right. That's in the scene where Feuerstein is telling Albert Brooks essentially that like, nobody likes him as a writer anymore. Everybody thinks what he writes is shit. And then Lorenzo, Lorenzo Lamas comes up and he's just like, I read your draft. It's brilliant. <laughs> Good for Lorenzo Lamas, I guess, for, uh, for sending himself up like that. Sybil Shepard shows up very early. She's presenting the award at the beginning as herself. We talked about how Wolfgang Puck is just a full-on supporting actor in this movie. Uh, I was very confused by Los Angeles food in this movie. At (laughs) one point, Andy McDowell and Sharon Stone go to a restaurant and their plates are just like a slice of watermelon, a slice of melon, and like a leaf. And like, that's their entree. It doesn't even look like they've touched it. It's true. Um, I mean, strange. jokes about L.A. food felt very 90s, too. Just like, what do they eat in L.A.? It's like a single piece of sushi with a dot of, you know, colored goo on it or whatever. Um, all those, all those like, very sort of, like, hoary jokes about... Uh, it's a I plate... Mean, that and cookies, apparently. Yeah, a plate with, like, you know, four dots of uh, of balsamic vinegar on, uh, on a plate or whatever, and that's your meal. Um, what if her cookie business was Andy and Vanjie's get these cookies? Get those cookies, get those cookies. <laughs> See, you're already showing a lot more marketing acumen than the muse in this movie. Vanjie McDowell. Also, this movie mentions famous Amos so many times. Like, apparently, oh my Sharon's God. got like Mrs. 8 billion Fields. stories about famous Amos and Mrs. Fields. She's just like, what's Andy hanging McDowell with McDowell has a vendetta against Mrs. Fields. And I'm like, do we still eat Mrs. Fields cookies? Do we know them as Mrs. Fields cookies? I will say, up until a few years ago, my favorite, you know how every city has a good mall and a less good mall? My favorite in Buffalo was always the less good mall because it was quieter and it was, you know, whatever. And at some point, it still had stores. It does not still have stores anymore. It is sad to go to this mall. But up until a few years ago, it had a Mrs. Fields uh, kiosk in the middle of the mall. 
And those cookies were good, I'm going to tell you. And that's what I would get before I would go to a movie. I would go and I would get a Mrs. Fields cookie and I would take it to the movie theater with me. And I would have a good old time with my Mrs. Fields cookie. But uh, yeah. Also, famous Amos aren't good cookies. No, that's, that's the like whole point. basically cookie crisp. And yet, apparently, famous Amos is the one that the muse wants her to emulate. And Mrs. Fields is the entity she wants her to like crush like a bug. It's very funny. Joe, now would be a great time to break to our um, ad break for uh, Famous Amos Cookies. Oh, my God. Cookie companies, like, literally, if you are uh, with a cookie company and want to sponsor this podcast, we'll do it. We will shit on Famous Amos. For I you. will. We Yeah, we will say whatever you want us to say. Just uh, sponsor us for cookies, for sure. Famous Amos is terrible. You should have these cookies instead. Um Let's talk about the Globes. I want to get into Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Please, thing. please, please. Okay, so Sharon deservedly got a Golden Globe nomination for her performance in The Muse. She loses to Janet McTeer for Tumbleweeds, which was like a Sundance movie, huge critical success, blah, 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 had a long trajectory. Janet McTeer gets the Oscar nomination. Sharon Stone is also nominated with Julianne Moore for An Ideal Husband. Uh, we could have talked about Julianne Moore's 1999. I'll be um, back on Sundays with Kate to talk about that movie soon. Look out for that. Uh, Julia Roberts was nominated for Notting Hill. And spectacularly, Reese Witherspoon was nominated for Election. Hell yeah. Should have won that globe. Hell yeah. Okay, this story with Sharon Stone's nomination has been getting, like, re-brought into discussion because of all of the shit going down with the Globes. And, like, the the Globes may cease to exist soon. And, like, they've given certainly good reasons. God, what if that was the last Golden Globe ceremony ever? That's sad. The the 2021 Golden Globes, if that's the last one ever. Ugh. To be honest, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association can go down in flames. We can have another award show that has the same level of impact. Okay, instead of the Golden you Globes. say that We're... though, but someone's got to put in the work of making that happen because, like, okay, as it Globes... stands, the SAGs are not that right now. You could make the SAGs that, but they're not that right now. And they... Critics' Choice, because they've been, on I the will be they cold are, in the ground before shitty. I. I will be cold in the ground before I let the Critics' Choice become the new Golden Globes. That is what I will say. Yeah, because they they they're cringy. Yeah. Um, I mean, like they're prob they're not like as they don't have the problems that the Hollywood Foreign Press. They're a sham has, in a like, different way. I'll just say it. They're whatever. Right. Right. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association is uh, for stories like this one we're about to tell yeah. are uh, a problem on top of numerous other things but i think they're going down anyway we can have another show instead of the globes where famous people get trophies and get drunk and affect the oscar race we again just make it happen do it do yeah, it just before make it happen we, yeah, yeah all right um anyway we all know that the globes are very um swayed by the whims of plane tickets and gifts and things trinkets so in many the, ways they're like the muse you give them a Tiffany yes, box full exactly. of something and they will... Uh... That's what I'm saying. This story for this movie is particularly yes. funny to me. The yes. layers of it. So as part of the campaigning, while the Globes voting was in session, so it's not like this was just part of promo for the movie. It was during the Globes voting calendar. Right. October Films sends all of the members watches from coach as part of a like fyc campaign 
during the voting period. It gets attributed to Sharon Stone sent them right. when she didn't. I'm sure what it was is like, it wasn't just a watch in a box. Like it was probably part of a package of here is this uh, FYC Sharon Stone, right? And right. It gets conflated to being Sharon Stone's fault. No, it was the studio. The studio well, bounces back and says, oh, these were given us given to us for free anyway. It's not like we spent $400 for each of these watches to try to get a nomination for Sharon Stone. Also, though, this was the year that October had been purchased by and sort of subsumed into USA Films. So... That also feels significant in that, like, you have this new parent company trying to make a splash with the Golden Globes and, you know, willing to sort of go all out and play that game to get it. But, yeah, then all of a sudden it becomes Sharon Stone's trying to buy herself uh, a Golden Globe, which... which Which, With these shitty watches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then the, the... the president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association made everybody give them back. Right. So they had to give them all back. Yeah. And Sharon Stone still gets nominated. They, like, said this whole thing of, like, absolutely not. It was not uh, part of her nomination. I, The report that I read said that the watches were received three days before voting closed, which, like, if it's even a week-long voting period, I do have a hard time believing that it was, like, solely the reason she got a nomination. And it's also a great performance, too. Like, Well, and she's Sharon Stone. Like, the Golden Globes have nominated Sharon Stone a bunch of times. She had just been nominated the year before for The Mighty in a... Uh, as a supporting performance. I would love to talk about that movie. We should. Um, she had Obviously, she had won the Golden Globe for Casino. Like, the Golden Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press, had all, already liked Sharon Stone. Like, you could, you could conceive of them nominating her without needing the watches. I'm sure, as they have felt many times over the years, that, like, they, you know, they appreciated the gifts anyway. But, uh... Right. Yeah. And, like, The Muse was a very late summer movie. It was, like, right before, um... Labor Day, but like she's nominated. It's like it wouldn't have been like the release date was a problem because she's nominated against Julia Roberts for Notting Hill, which was a summer movie. Like, right, right. But all of it, I think, illustrates not necessarily just the Globe's bad behavior, but the studio's complicity. Yeah. In that behavior where it's like, well, maybe they're like the studios play a part because they are right. still playing into this. You can't bribe yourself wants to be bought. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have to do the bribing. Right. There's got to be somebody to do the bribing and studios are quite happy to do that. Yeah. Regardless, Sharon deserves the nomination. We love Sharon. Uh, listeners have previously asked me what are the great wild follows of actresses on Instagram. If you aren't following Sharon Stone, you're out of your mind. She's just sensational. I mean, yeah. Like, I always think of... You've seen that Kathy Griffin routine about the oh Am Far Oh my god, benefit, this right? is so great. Talk about this. Okay, so like... It's it's from a very early one of I think maybe the first Kathy Griffin stand up special that aired on Bravo called The D List. This was before she had the show called My Life on the D List. This is sort of the chicken before the egg of that. Um, Kathy tells her big sort of like every special that she has, especially in the early years when they were still good before they sort of devolved into like I went to Cher's house. Um, love you, Kathy, but you know, 
It's true. Um, I talk to Kathy as if she's a listener to our podcast. Um, but each, <laughs> uh, each of the specials would have like one sort of like centerpiece story. And the one time it was when she met all the American Idol kids. And the one time is when she went to see Celine in Vegas. And this one, the centerpiece story is Kathy was, uh, speaking at an Amfar benefit that was attended by a bunch of big celebrities and she was supposed to do like a certain amount of comedy and she talks about how awkward that was sort of uh, uh having to follow the doctor talking about all this like aids research being done and and then she's just like and now funny lady kathy griffith and um <laughs> which is funny because if you ever saw that hbo documentary the battle for amphar like the doctor that they focus on in that is that woman anyway um She's at the Amphar Benefit. Sharon Stone uh, is speaking also at this thing. And Sharon apparently tells this whole story, this sort of like long meandering story about meeting uh, John Lennon uh, in the years before he died. And at that, uh, during that same speech, um, sort of gives this like spoken word rendition of Imagine, which... So she takes out a piece of paper and she goes like this, totally seriously. She goes like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Okay. If you thought 2020 was the first time that celebrities terrorized you with the song Imagine. Imagine. It's so... For tone deafness. Right. So Sharon speaks. She does the Imagine thing. Uh, Kathy's supposed to speak after this like little intermission and apparently she says during the intermission that Rosie O'Donnell came up to her and she was just like you believe what she just fucking did and um and and is uh is then trying to goad Kathy into she's just like I'll give you a hundred uh, she's like I'll give you a thousand dollars if you go up there and say the lyrics to Itsy Bitsy Spider <laughs> And um and that is like rallying. She's like getting the other celebrities. She's like Darren Starr's in for fifteen hundred, like that kind of thing. All right, so then Darren Starr, the creator of Sex in the City, he walks over to my table and he says, I'm in for five. <laughs> and I said, How do you even know about this? And then he goes, Oh, Rosie's going table to table. But then also the other part of that story was that uh, Kathy had been, you know, nervous about doing comedy and AIDS benefit, blah, blah, blah. And she had talked to Rosie about it. And Rosie's just like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. And then so she's Kathy says this to Sharon. And apparently she says Sharon goes, Rosie O'Donnell is afraid you're going to be funnier than her and steal her thunder. This was the beauty of the old Kathy Griffin stuff. It was just like telling tales out of school and celebrities being catty with one one another. It's just like, it's the greatest fucking story ever. But I will Here's always... sing. Sharon Stone is both the butt of the joke and the hero of that exactly. story. Because Sharon Stone exactly. is right. <laughs> That's the whole Sharon Stone thing. Is she gets up there and like, but I will always, always, always think of her now saying, imagine there's no heaven. Like, like that kind of thing. Um... <laughs> But also, you're right, but that's the Sharon thing. It's just like, she's absolutely ridiculous, and yet, absolutely, like, you are on her side anyway. She's right! Rosie was yeah. intimidated by Kathy. It's so funny, though. It's so amazing. Um, find it, if it's on, if it's not on YouTube, I think you can, like, 
rent if we it can find Prime it i'll put it like on the Tumblr. don't worry about like it. that it's worth a rental like it's kathy griffin the d-list to like find it can we talk a little bit about uh like the ethos of basic instinct for yeah Shamestone? We didn't really get into that and i feel like we don't we won't have a ton of opportunities to talk about sharon stone mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. basic instinct like and the excerpt from her book that um vanity fair published like went into a lot of like detail with what that did for her career how she had to fight for it like the repercussions she faced but like i don't you watch that fucking performance now and it's like it is I mean, that movie is an Oscar nominee, so, like, it had to have been in some conversations, but, like, also at the time, there were people that thought she was legitimately terrible in the movie. Right. Which is, I mean, sexism at play. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I rewatched it recently. It's getting a re-release in theaters. I will show up in my mask. <laughs> I mean, it's... And go see that in a theater. Like, I love that movie. And her performance is, like, one of the best performances of the 90s. Right. And you... I think the the fact that she wasn't Oscar-nominated for it is explicable in that, like, there are certain subject matters that they, especially in the 90s, were, like, trepidatious about. And obviously, like, a sex thriller was going to seem like, oh, well, that's not really in consideration. That's not the kind of, like, yeah. you know, thing yeah. we're going for. And and there's history of that back through, you know, like, Body Heat for Kathleen Turner and whatsoever. And, like, you know, these things that are, like, really, really well-reviewed, but they're just like, well, that's not in our box. That's not in our bucket. And that's mm-hmm. fine. But, like, the critics were rallying around her. Certain critics were rallying around her, at least. The ones mm-hmm. who, you know, sort of got it. The people who get that movie. The yeah. people who get that, like... And I mean, there was also controversy at the time that she was, like, yet another murderous lesbian on film, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think the people that got that movie at the time, and I think we, there's a lot, there's still people who are averse to this movie. And, like, I get yeah. the movie is a lot. But, like, there were critics at the time who get that this movie is kind of unpacking what an entire genre does the whole like grossness of a lot of these male characters like you watch that movie now and you think of vertigo which like vertigo is so unsettling vertigo is a movie that is about grooming and yet like the pastiche the genre the way we are as a culture like that's not how people necessarily read the movie and a lot of those type of movies audiences are always on the side of the male character who is doing very gross bad things yes and like basic instinct is all about unpacking that and it makes it even more challenging because the female character is a psychopathic murderer right (laughs) like right um but like truly what a star making performance like on a whole level of like if you want to talk about like top 10 star making performances like oh yeah consider sharon stone in that lineup well again as i said it's essentially like paved the way for her to have her whole career through the 90s which is mm-hmm. you know pretty cool and it's a really it interesting also a double-edged career. sword too and for some of it that was not her fault like the infamous shot of her crotch was not right her she had no play in that and you know it was used against her and i think the way that the public treated her from that and especially like 
the press treated her for that yeah didn't help her in the long run it's there's an ugliness to the way that Sharon Stone has sort of been treated throughout her career and she's had you know many mm-hmm. great successes and you know had made a lot of like gotten a lot of lead roles and and whatever but there the resistance to giving her her due is pretty gross to me yeah so yeah even to the point of like basic uh, the way she was treated for basic instinct 2 which everybody also needs to go see basic instinct 2 because like that movie is an absolute train wreck and like she is <laughs> completely fascinating in that movie and i think nothing that is horrible about that movie is her fault but like it all got placed upon her shoulders and like the sexism she received for that movie of like the audacity of her you know having these sex scenes and these and all the nudity for that movie at her age was absolutely gross at the time yeah though like trust me when i say basic instinct 2 needs a camp midnight revival rowdy screening uh reappraisal (laughs) i've never seen it so i would absolutely um she she is absolutely giving you camp excellence in that movie nice awesome she knows the movie she's in is there anything else we want to say about the muse before we sort of transition into the imdb game um uh i want to taste those cookies yes if those are truly landmark cookies baked in andy mcdowell's kitchen show me the receipts they look like regular cookies yes also i love when like the signifier for a business like that going to like the big time is they have the big um rack uh, the, the the rack on wheels for the trays for the cookies, just like in their kitchen, and it's just like oh, that wow. is the sign of a legitimate baking business. That is a shorthand for like rolling scaling rack. up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for real. All right. All right, should we move into the IMDb game? Yeah, Chris, tell uh, tell them what it's about. You guys, you know it. You know what we do here. But in case you are a new listener, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and cameos (laughs) and cookies. Indeed, indeed. All right, Chris, do you want to give or guess first uh how about i guess first i feel like i usually choose to give so uh why don't i guess okay so i had a few options for this uh i wanted to go sort of down the albert brooks route he's in some you know big major movies and he's made a bunch of major movies but he was also uh the voice of a tiger in dr doolittle which dr doolittle you ask (laughs) well the 1998 uh, Dr. Doolittle, starring Eddie Murphy. And I don't think we've done Eddie Murphy for the ah. game yet. So, give me Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy actually feels like it would be really difficult, though I don't think I'm going to be like... I don't think anything on Eddie Murphy's is going to be niche, right? Because, like, he's the st- he's the headliner of all of his movies... He's directed before, um, he's an Oscar nominee, so, like, I don't think, like, 
I don't know, Tower Heist is going to be there. <laughs> is there any voice performances? No. Okay, no Shrek, no Mulan. Right. Um, I'm going to throw out his Oscar nomination, Dreamgirls. Correct, Dreamgirls is Incredible, should have won. Um, because of the sequel, I'm going to say Coming to America. Correct, Coming to America. Okay, uh, Beverly Hills Cop? No, not Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, so none of the other, it would be the first one and not the other ones. Okay. Um, The Nutty Professor? Yes, The Nutty Professor. Very good. Okay. Almost there. Okay, so how do I want to break this down? It's not going to be... I don't think it's going to be Dolomite is my name. Netflix almost never shows up. I don't think it's going to be like Pluto Nash or even Bowfinger. Is it Dr. Doolittle? It's not Dr. Doolittle. That's strike two. Ah. All right. So now you're going to get a year as your hint. Your year is 1989. Okay. So this is post Beverly Hills Cop. Um, okay. It's not one of the stand-ups, is it? No. Okay. 89. It can't be... It can't be another 48 hours. When did that come out? Another 48 hours was 1990. Okay. And... Boomerang is in the 90s because that has Holly Berry. Yep. 89. Is it... Oh, no, it's going to be it's it's going to be the movie he also directed, which would make sense from like an SEO standpoint. Uh it's uh Har- Harlem Nights. Harlem Nights. Yes, very good. Yeah. Yes, written and directed by Eddie Murphy. Uh it's him and Richard Pryor on the poster. Yeah. Harlem Nights. Very, very good. Cool. Good job. All right, for you, I uh went the route of other cinematic muses. <laughs> um you were talking about all movies dealing with muses are wild. I thought of Mighty Aphrodite, which has a whole framing device of Greek theater. And, of course, basically the Aphrodite of the movie is Oscar winner Mira Sorvino. Yay. Okay. I can do Mira Sorvino. All right. Mighty Aphrodite is definitely one of them. It is It is there. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion is definitely one of them. It is also there. Okay. Is the Guillermo del Toro movie Mimic one of them? It is not. Damn, okay. There is no Mimic, shockingly, because she's first build She's in first movie. build in Mimic. All right. Mimic has a cult following. It's also Guillermo del Toro, but not there. All right. Now I'm trying to think if there were other movies that she was a lead in, or if I start going for supporting stuff for Mira. Um, Because she played a lot of, like, wives. We talked about she was a wife in uh, Reservation Road. Um, is one of them beautiful girls? No. Okay. Well, that's two strikes, so. Oh, it, it is actually, years. yeah. Okay. So your years are 1998 and 2004. 
2004 is pretty late in the game. 1998. So the year after Romy and Michelle, Lisa Kudrow goes to do Opposite of Sex. And I will say Mira Sorvino is on the poster for this movie. Oh, is it? Uh, you remember this poster. Is, is it the one with her and Chow Young-Fat? Yes. What is it called? Is it The Replacement Killers? It is indeed The Replacement Killers. Okay. 2004? What is the poster, by the way, for The Replacement Killers? Uh, it is Chow Yun-Fat uh, with Mir Sorvino staring very closely, and Chow Yun-Fat is pointing a gun at you. Uh-huh. Oh, I, the genre of posters where they're pointing a gun at you. There's a lot of those. Yeah, actually. and the lady is standing very close, yes. All right, 2004. So, definitely... We're into the sort of this is already not a memorable into the poster. leaner years. Uh, is it a memorable movie? Uh, no, not at all. We have talked about this movie before for the lead star, who is like the only thing on the poster, like looking askance and fraught. Um, this is a perform a very famous performer who we've talked about the times that they would go off type. And that always brought some like type of buzz, except for like movies like this. Mira Sorvino is second build, I should say. So is it a Meg Ryan movie? It's not. Hmm. It's a comedic actor who uh, would oftentimes get a lot of attention when playing dramatic. Robin Williams. Yes. 2004. Is it like Jacob the Liar? It is not Jacob the Liar. Jacob the Liar, I think, is a 99. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Oh, for Robin Williams. Um, This is definitely bottom of the barrel Robin Williams. He's doing a drama. I think it's a thriller, actually. Is it one of the ones where he's, like, a terrible dad? No. All right, so this is a couple years after 2002 when he does Insomnia and One Hour Photo. It's a bad Robin He's not the villain of this movie. He's definitely the protagonist. Oh, why is this not coming to me? The poster suggests he's going on the run or something, or he's hiding. Oh. Are you sure I know what this movie is? I'm sure you know what this is. We definitely brought this up in the One Hour Photo episode. Okay. Um, the uh, Robin Williams is first build. Second build is Mira Sorvino. Third build is Jim Kavitzel. I don't know. How about I read you the IMDb logline for it? Okay. Set in a world with memory recording implants, Alan Hackman is a cutter, someone with the power to f- of final edit over people's recorded histories. His latest assignment is one that puts him in danger. I'm not lying to you when I say I have no familiarity with this. The title is The Blank Blank, and I used both blanks in the logline. Read the logline again. <laughs> Set in a world with memory recording implants, Alan Hackman is a cutter, someone with the power of final final edit over people's recorded histories. The final edit. The final cut. The final, Jesus Christ, I've never heard of that movie before. 
You have heard of this movie. I have We've not talked about it in like the lump of uh, Robin Williams serious movies. That is so it's rude. Definitely one of the less to Mira Sorvino. Ones, That's so rude I to know. Mira Sorvino that that is on her known for. Are you kidding me? She's second build. Yeah, but like she's first build in Mimic. Just let her be. I mimic. know. There's also like at first sight, Son of Sam. Right. Uh, what else would I have guessed? I should have guessed Summer of Sam at one point. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. That's crazy. Anyway. Anyway, that's the IMDb game. Okay, one more thing, and we totally forgot to mention this, but it's absolutely in my notes. The thoroughly unwell Elton John song over the closing credits of this movie. Oh my god. That tells the story of the movie, because the song is called The Muse, because apparently Elton John did all the music for this movie. It's literally just like she walks into your life and then she wears her hair weird. Like it's just like it tells you the entire plot of this movie. It's so <laughs> fucking bizarre. And it's written by like and it's and she makes your wife make cookies. It's like you got Elton John and Bernie Toppin, the like these like once in a generation, you know, musical talents or whatever, and then you're gonna put them to the task of summarizing the muse for your soundtrack. <laughs> That's it's... because she's my muse. Seriously, amazing! It didn't get a glow. And globe then your wife bakes some cookies. Like it's just so fucked up. It's just bizarre. Marish Scorsese <laughs> is really funny. <laughs> James Cameron's oh. afraid of water. Be careful who and that's you That's what makes her the muse. <laughs> you give some watches to some Hollywood foreign press people. Yeah. It's uh It's crazy. It's insane. I couldn't Do you think Sharon made that call? <laughs> I think she called up Elton. Like Elton it's just like... a song. Do you have five minutes? <laughs> Literally. Like, can you and Bernie just like whip up something on your lunch break? Uh, couldn't believe it as I was listening to it. I was like, is this, cause I like, I could tell it was Elton John, but I was like, did he write this about the, and then I looked it up and I saw that the title of the song was The Muse and I was just like, oh no, oh God, Elton. That was not Golden Globe Laura Dern shows up at the Globes for (laughs) announcing the original song nominees. From The Muse, The Muse. (laughs) Music by Bernie Taupin. Or music by Elton John, lyrics by Bernie Taupin. Oh, God. Of all the, like, we talk about the songs of 1999 and the ones that were nominated and the ones that were not. Like, I will never bring up uh, Elton John's The Muse in that conversation. I will say that. First episode on the books for our Focus Features miniseries. Joe, tell the listeners what they have to look forward to if they uh, haven't been following us on Twitter. Oh, this is very exciting. So we've gotten through our... uh, October Films entry for The Muse. The next uh, one we will jump right into that first year of Focus Features with uh, Possession, directed by Neil LeBute, starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Aaron Eckhart, a movie I've never seen. So that'll be interesting for me. I haven't either. And Jennifer Ely. It'll be our first Jennifer Ely. You are very excited for our first Jennifer Ely. I love that. I love her so much. She's wonderful. Uh, We will follow that up with Ang Lee's Lust Caution which will be very uh, fun, sexy time had by all, for sure. Um, Her first non-English language film. Yeah, yes, that'll be great. Uh, then 2013's The Place Beyond the Pines, uh, Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, uh, Derek Cianfrance, lots to talk about there. 
not a movie. It's a divisive movie. So I will, uh, I will enjoy that conversation for sure. And then we're going to wrap it up with 2018's Boy Erased with uh, Lukey Hedges and uh, Nicole Kidman and intolerant Russell Crowe. It'll be fun. It's going to be a good month, you guys. It's going to be a good month. So we are excited to have you all uh, uh, on board and listening and keep listening because it'll be fun. Yay. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry. Take us home. That is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. I just bit my tongue as I was saying that, so if I... Uh, stumble over these list these uh, next few sentences understand it's because my tongue is currently in pain and swelling so that'll be fun uh chris where can the listeners find you and your stuff uh you can find me baking cookies on twitter at chris v file that's f-e-i-l also on letterboxd under the same name i am on twitter at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d i'm also on letterboxd as joe reed reed spelled the exact same way we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts, now including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts' visibility, so put your hair up in one billion butterfly clips and get inspired to write us a glowing review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Up my muse. She's my means to achieve a simple quota. When it's make or break, oh, make no mistake. Oh, she appears like lightning in a bottle. I catch the spark, oh, and she lights the dark. The nuts undone